Let's take a break from some of the incredible Antarctic science covered this season and shine some light on the equally important implementation of policy in Antarctica. Today I am joined by Dr. Neil Gilbert and PhD student Natasha Gardner to have a chat about Antarctic policy. Neil is a health, safety and environmental consultant and polar specialist. He is the director of Constantia Consulting and on the board for Antarctica New Zealand and the Jane Goodall Institute New Zealand. Formerly, Neil was the Environment Manager at Antarctica New Zealand and Base Commander for the British Antarctic Survey. With a mammoth 30 years experience in environmental management and 10 years experience in implementing health and safety solutions, Neil is well equipped to answer our questions about Antarctic policy. Also joining us is Neil's PhD student Natasha. She is an Environmental Advisor at Antarctica New Zealand who, after realising a fundamental gap in our understanding of how Antarctic science impacts policymaking at both national and international levels, decided to undertake a PhD. Her research focuses on the effectiveness of the Antarctic Science Policy Interface. If you're interested in the kinds of policies in place in Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, and the processes involved in implementing these policies, then tune in. Or maybe you're here because you want to understand how an entire continent is devoted to peace and science thanks to the Antarctic Treaty and its protocols. Either way, you'll learn a lot from these two. Enjoy. First question is, what is policy and what is the process involved in implementing policy in Antarctica? So policy generally is the, um, the development of uh, rules and norms to which, uh, in this case, international um, uh, groups or parties or countries um, will develop uh, collectively and then implement through their own uh, national systems. And that's, that's quite a, a, a crucial element of the way that the Antarctic Treaty system works in that there is quite an involved process of negotiation. Uh, each country, of course, bringing along their own and quite different perspectives on occasions, and then an agreement. And that agreement in the context of the Antarctic Treaty System is undertaken by consensus. So every party that has the right to, to vote needs to agree to whatever it is that is that's on the table at the time. And that consensus decision-making process has often been regarded as both a strength and, and a weakness of the system. Right. So people frequently talk about Antarctica as a pristine place. How untouched is Antarctica in reality? And what policies are in place to ensure Antarctica is kept pristine? Um, it's really interesting because the question of whether or not Antarctica Antarctica is actually pristine, is very highly contended amongst the science community because um, the continent's under pretty significant pressure from uh, human activities that are both indirect on the continent and also direct. So direct activities being like fishing and tourism and the introduction of non-native species, pollution from shipping and things like that. Um, and then indirect from human activities elsewhere on the globe so say like climate change or plastic pollution um, both in the ocean and atmospheric um, so yeah the antarctic treaty system is a policy framework that um, sort of aims well throughout time it's it's developed uh, 
instruments that have kind of added on to the original Antarctic Treaty itself. Mm -hmm. um, and though some of those instruments are directly looking at protecting the environment. You don't have to delve too far into the literature to see that the treaty system is not necessarily super effective in the way it's actually looking after the environment. Could you go into a bit more depth in terms of what the Antarctic Treaty is and how it came about and what its role is in the Antarctic? Well, so the Antarctic Treaty um, is a pretty incredible keystone document of the whole um, system. And if we sort of rewind back in time to the 50s and 60s, um, the whole world was kind of emerging from the uh, aftermath of World War II. Um, the Cold War was ongoing, um, the arms race, nuclear um, weapons were being created both by all of the superpowers at the time. So there was a lot of um, geopolitical tensions around um, the 50s. And what actually happened was this thing called the International Geophysical Year, where um, scientists came together and decided to uh, cooperate um, and basically try and understand, develop our understanding of the Earth's natural systems. Um, and so it was this huge year during like 56, 1956 to 57, um, where countries actually came together, which was pretty incredible at this time of severe political tension across the globe. Right. Um, and they significantly developed our understanding of the natural environment, including uh, in the polar regions. And beyond that, the science community started to basically lobby for more funds to continue their work in Antarctica. And... Um, I think it was President Eisenhower at the time, um, he already had ideas of looking at Antarctica and how they wanted to manage it because at the time they were worried about um, various things like there was the tensions going on in the Antarctic Peninsula between Chile and Argentina and the UK With trying to lay claims. claims. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, the Soviet Union, they didn't, you know, the... America was worried that the Soviet Union were going to use Antarctica for military purposes. And there was the question of resources um, in Antarctica. And at this time as well, all these countries were starting to lay claims. So essentially putting flags down in the sand to say, this is my piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of kicked off these secret meetings, I would say, Neil. Right. Would you... Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and those sort of secret meetings developed into what is now the Antarctic Treaty. So there was 12 original signatory nations that came together. Um, they signed the treaty in December in 1959. So these um, secret meetings were between these 12, 12 countries in particular, or were there some people that came and went and were involved but didn't sign on the treaty initially? among these 12 nations specifically right yeah okay and seven of those were the claimant nations so that including new zealand had um kind of placed their claim interestingly the superpowers at the time hadn't made claims so america didn't have a claim right. um, russia didn't have a claim china didn't have a claim um mm. so what was incredible about the Antarctic Treaty was that basically it set Antarctica aside for peaceful purposes, um, scientific investigation and cooperation towards that end. Um, also promoted the sharing of scientific information and set aside those territorial claims. So it kind of froze them in time. No more claims could be made. Um, and 
yeah, they, they wouldn't really be recognised any longer, which is interesting because how it plays out today, you'll see that those claimant nations really only do operate in their um, Antarctic claim. But yeah, yeah. so it was, it was an amazing agreement at that time of political tension to um, create this thing that basically set Antarctica aside for peace, cooperation and science. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what it was missing was environmental considerations they weren't really on the political radar at the time right um and also the issue of uh resources in antarctica weren't addressed at, at, at in 1959 by the antarctic treaty but i'm sure that's something we can talk yes. about later on yes so when does this and does this treaty expire as such so you say that it was made back in the 50s and you know since then we've had a lot more countries sign into uh, well not make claims, but sign the treaty, become signatories in the treaty, um, take part in the meetings that happen each year. So what is the process involved here? Yeah, so I think it's, it's fascinating to see the growth in the system over time, as uh, Natasha has just outlined. Uh, this was an agreement between just 12 countries to start with back in the 1950s. And now we've got 54 countries in total that have signed up to the Antarctic Treaty. And of those 54 countries, 29 have active involvement in Antarctica itself, either through the establishment of stations or the sending of regular scientific expeditions down to, to the continent. So the system's grown significantly over time. And that's also strengthened the system because it now has much stronger uh, international involvement uh, in it. And so I think that's, uh, that, that's part of its success, is that it seemed to be something that countries should be signing up to over time. When does the treaty expire? Is it a never-ending document? Is it just f for, forever in existence? Or does it come up for discussion every now and again? That's a really good question. There is a, a common, commonly held understanding that the treaty does expire but we can put it on record right now to say that it doesn't. There is no end date to the treaty right? or to any of the other agreements that the treaty parties have negotiated over time. But there is some complication around this because both the treaty itself and the environmental protocol to the Antarctic Treaty, which we can come and talk about, do have the opportunity for reviews to be, uh, they are built into the to, the to the documents themselves. So there is an opportunity for countries to uh, re request a conference and for that conference to review those documents. Uh, to date, nobody has ever requested such a, a conference be held or no country has ever requested that such a conference be held. Um, so the, those principles of reviewing the documents has never really been tested, but really crucial to, to emphasize that there's no formal end date to the treaty. They will continue on indefinitely. Amazing. Mm. So when we're talking about nations having a claim over the Antarctic, one thing that's real interesting is that New Zealand, as you mentioned, has a claim, and that is the Ross Sea region. So can we just go into a bit more depth in terms of where the Ross Sea region is located, how big it is, and um, what's actually down there? Yeah, so the, uh, the New Zealand's territorial claim... Um, is certainly south of New Zealand. It uh, encompasses the, um, the area known as Victoria Land, so the, the Victoria Land coastline, um, south and north Victoria Land. 
the Ross Ice Shelf, which is immediately to the south of, uh, of New Zealand and the largest ice shelf in Antarctica and a small area of land over to uh, the eastern side um, of, of that claim. Um, interestingly, the vast majority of New Zealand's claim is uh, marine based. So most of it is really encompassed by the, the Ross Sea region. And um, in terms of what's down there, there is a real mix of environments. We there are some ice free areas uh, in that part of, uh, of New Zealand's claim, including the dry valleys of Antarctica, which I have to say is one of the most beautiful and spectacular parts of the whole planet, let alone Antarctica itself. It includes the Ross Ice Shelf, the biggest floating piece of ice on the planet. And then this vast area of the Ross Sea region, which um, is, um, supports a wide variety of marine life, including important seal and whale species. Amazing. And what kind of bases are down there? We've got New Zealand's Scott Base, but I know there's also a few other bases from different countries that are in this um, Ross Sea region as well. Yeah, so just over the hill from Scott Base, I think it's about three kilometres away, is McMurdo Station, which is the American station. It's quite a bit bigger than Scott Base. When you go over the hill, it's like, whoa, <laughs> bit of a different scene over there. Um, and then you jump across to Terranova Bay, which is a bit around the corner. Um, what have you got? You've got the Italian base, Mario Zucchelli. Um, you've got the Korean base. I'm just trying to remember the name, Neil. You can help me out here. Jangbogo Station. Yep, Jangbogo. Um, and then what I'm just trying to think what else. There's a small German station in the same vicinity in that Terranova Bay area uh, yes. called Gondwana. Um, so yeah, a number of nations that occupy wow. the, or spend time in the, uh, the Ross Sea region. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of collaboration between those stations and the people that work there considering they're in, well, especially the Americans and the New Zealanders in quite close proximity? Yeah, really strong level of collaboration that, that, mm. that goes on. Natasha can sort of give some, some examples, but um, it's uh, a fundamental principle in some ways of the Antarctic Treaty and the Antarctic Treaty system, uh, which aims to foster collaboration and cooperation, particularly on scientific research. But a number of nations also collaborate very effectively on logistical support as well. Mm, right. Yeah, I was going to say that New Zealand's um, Antarctic Science Programme has a lot to thank uh, from the Americans because we have a joint logistics pool with them. So we really wouldn't be getting as many scientists down there every year if it weren't for the Americans. So we're quite lucky in that respect. Mm. So let's just round back to the conversation about the Antarctic Treaty. And we touched upon the different protocols and I guess conversations and groups that focus more on environmental protection. What is the protocol environmental protection to the Antarctic Treaty? Yeah, just, I'll just jump in here with, with a particular point. I mean, Natasha very um, nicely outlined the importance of negotiating the Antarctic Treaty itself and the challenges that were, were trying to be overcome by that document. And she made the point that there was a number of things that the treaty didn't address, such as environmental protection and uh, resource use. So the parties over time, noting those gaps, have agreed a number of different instruments to, to address those things that the treaty itself had missed out. And I like to point out that even within just a few years, just three years of the Antarctic Treaty coming into force, 
the parties had already recognized the importance of environmental management and had negotiated a suite of measures for, to protect or conserve Antarctic fauna and flora. So environmental protection very quickly became a key focus of the, of the treaty parties very early on in the treaty system, and it has been ever since. And then in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was a strong call to negotiate a comprehensive regime to bring together these various measures on environmental protection into one single document that became the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty. And the protocol does a number of important things that we can explore uh, in a while, but it brings together a, effectively a tough set of rules to regulate human activity in Antarctica and to protect the natural environment. Mm -hmm. And what are some examples of these rules? Yep, so uh, the protocol has six annexes. Um, the first one's looking at environmental impact assessments. So basically every single person um, or group who goes down to Antarctica, uh, they need to submit an impact assessment, uh, which basically outlines what the impacts of their activities will have on the environment. And this is then reviewed by the competent authority uh, within whatever country they're traveling down there and working with. Um, so there's three levels. You've got the, and sorry, you've got the PEE, which is the Preliminary Environmental Evaluation, um, which is if your event or whatever your activities are is going to have less than a minor or transitory impact on the environment. And then you've got the Initial Environmental Impact Assessment. So that's if you're doing something slightly bigger. For example, uh, some of the scientists who work right out on the Ross Ice Shelf, uh, they do a really big, long um, three-week traverse out there to get all of the science equipment out, and they drill right wow. down through the ice mm -hmm. um, to the ocean underneath, which is very incredible. Uh, so they have to submit an IEE for their activities, which is that their activities will have a transitory or minor impact on the environment and then if you have um, quite a bigger uh, plan such as building a scientific station you have to submit a comprehensive environmental evaluation um, which is if your activity is going to have more than a transitory or a minor impact on the environment and yeah so you've got those three levels of impact assessment what's interesting is that um, the what is actually a transitory impact on the environment hasn't really been identified. Right. Um, so, yeah. So that's kind yeah. of up to the, dis the discretion of the person that is writing the impact assessment. They've got to decide what, what they think, what level they think it's at, basically. Yes. And the, whatever the, so in New Zealand, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, they are the competent authority that um, give out the permits in order to allow those activities to take place. Right. If they, for instance, thought that the activity required a higher level of assessment, they would, um, they would ask for that from whoever's submitting the assessment. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first of the annexes to the protocol. The second one is the conservation of flora and fauna, mm -hmm. um, which includes things like avoiding the introduction of non-native species to Antarctica or within regions in Antarctica. Um, the third annex is around waste disposal and management. Mm -hmm. um, so that's both for the marine space and terrestrial and fresh water. And then the fourth 
is prevention of marine pollution. The fifth is area protection management. So that's a really important um, key component of the protocol as well. Um, you have these things called Antarctic Specially Protected Areas, ASPAs, and right. Antarctic Specially Managed Areas, which are um, two different kinds of protected areas. The ASPAs, the protected areas, um, you require a permit to go into those areas and there's a management plan that basically outlines what kind of, um, how you should behave in that area and uh, what the values are that the area is protecting. So it might be protecting biodiversity or um, aesthetic values or historic, well, right. historic values as well. There's also another kind of protected area for historic monuments um, yep. and historic sites. Um, whereas the ASMAs, the Antarctic Specially Managed Areas, there's a lot less of them than the ASPAs. And they, you don't need a permit to go into those areas, but you basically need to follow the management plan that also outlines um, how you should behave in those areas and what sort of activities you can and can't do. Right. And then there is a sixth annex, sorry. To no, the that's okay. Keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's the liability annex. And that's actually not yet come into force and I think Neil correct me if I'm wrong was it 2006 that they it was uh, agreed in 2005 2005 yeah 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 right and what that does what the, what the liability annex does is it um, potentially when it enters into force and we're all not quite holding our breath but hopefully it'll enter into force fairly soon it, um, it means that an operator that fails adequately to respond to environmental damage, say like a pollution or a spill event, for example, if they fail adequately to, to respond to that and to clean it up, then they could be held liable uh, with financial penalties. And that applies to national programs like Antarctica New Zealand, as well as uh, to um, private operators like the tourism industry, for example. Right. I was just I was just reflecting, he hearing Natasha run off um, the uh, the various rules that the protocol establishes. I mean, that is quite a fantastic suite of really tough rules that apply to a whole continent. So you know the environmental expectations and standards are set pretty high. You can't do anything in Antarctica unless you've done some form of environmental impact assessment. That's pretty special, I think. And it also reminded me of how things have changed with the adoption of the environmental protocol in the early 90s. When I first started going down to Antarctica, long time ago, mid-80s, practices were very different. We used to have a cove just behind the station where I was spending time called Gash Cove. And that's where all of the rubbish was thrown. It doesn't matter what it was that was wow. um, disposed of from the station. It was disposed of locally in Gash Cove. Now that's all changed and now national programs have to put in place quite stringent procedures to manage their waste and return it all from Antarctica. So these rules have had a big effect on the way that we look after the place down there now. Yeah, mm. that's really but special. Also, yeah, I mean, you have the environmental protocol kind of at the top um, as an international instrument and then the treaty parties have to go home and implement that in their um, national legislation and that is relatively inconsistent across countries um, so I'll just give you the example of in New Zealand Antarctica New Zealand is our um, the national Antarctic program we have an environmental management system set up that's based around those components of the environmental protocol to ensure that we are as a country complying with those um, 
regulations that are set out, but I'm not sure how other countries do it. I don't know if you would know much about that, Neil, but it's definitely interpreted in quite different ways across um, nations. It's a really good point. And, and this is a challenge with any international legal system is that countries will take away what they want and there's often varying standards of implementation and and that can be quite important when it comes down to certain things um, like biosecurity for example um, it only takes one nation to have lesser standards um, and the risk exactly. is still there that something might be introduced so yeah. yeah it does rely on everybody playing the same game and that's mm. not always the case mm -hmm. And there is also one activity that stands out as well that doesn't require an environmental impact assessment, and that is fisheries in the Southern Ocean, right. um, which is managed under a separate uh, convention and instrument, which is CAMLA, mm -hmm. uh, which is the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. And um, yeah, so that's an interesting point to note. Yes, definitely. And that was actually one of my, my next questions is what is CAMLA and what is their role um, in, in Antarctica and in the Southern Ocean? Yes, so CAMLA is um, it's one of these separate agreements that treaty parties um, saw the need to, uh, to adopt. So the Antarctic Treaty itself says nothing about fishing activity. Um, and yet fishing activity has been going on in the Southern Ocean for, uh, for many decades, since mm -hmm. the um, 30s, 40s and 50s. And there was significant concern over a particular focus on Antarctic krill, um, which was um, being undertaken um, without any form of control or regulation. And krill, of course, is really important in the Antarctic food web. There are many species that depend upon krill as their primary food source. Mm -hmm. So the concern was that if you start taking huge quantities of krill out of the system, what would be the effects on, on other species? So the parties saw the need to negotiate um, uh, an international agreement that would regulate fishing, commercial fishing activity. And that came in the form of CAMLA that uh, Natasha has just outlined. So it was negotiated in the 70s and came into force in 1980. And it is a, um, a comprehensive agreement for the conservation of Antarctic uh, marine living resources with an emphasis on conservation. But conservation in the context of this agreement means that fishing activity or resource extraction can also take place. Right. And so the parties to CAMLA get together every year. They negotiate catch limits for the, uh, the harvested species, including krill, uh, but other fin fish species as well. And then obviously there are a number of nations that also have uh, fishing industry that, that will go down and prosecute those fisheries as well. Mm -hmm. And what type of regulation is on, on these fishing vessels? Do they have people that um, for a certain level of transparency are just watching over whether or not these rules are being followed correctly? Yes, and over the years, CAMLA has worked very hard to make sure that the standards of fishing activity are as, as high as they can be. And again, all of this is negotiated by consensus. And so it does take time to put these mm -hmm. standards or to develop the standards and then put them in place. But yes, you're right that um, the, the fishing vessels that go down have to have an observer on board. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also controls in place around um, where the fishing can take place, uh, the quantity of fish that can be taken from any particular area. 
um, and reporting requirements as well, daily and weekly and um, end of season reporting requirements that, that have to be met. And there's also in place a, um, a catch documentation scheme, which effectively rubber stamps the, the, the fish from the point of being caught right through to the, uh, to the marketplace. Uh, that gives it that um, level of control to make sure that um, it's being undertaken as sustainably as possible. Amazing. That's really interesting. So just going back to the protocol on environmental protection and CAMLA, these have come about from nations coming together and agreeing that something needs to be done to make sure that the Antarctic environment is, for lack of a better word, I guess, kept pristine, although we just spoke about how that's a terrible way of explaining it. Um, what, what is kind of required for these nations to be transparent? I mean, when we spoke about these different impact assessments, do they just go to the likes of MFAT and then they get passed or does it have to go to all the other countries that have signed on to the treaty? How can you access these, these documents? Like how at, you know, someone in New Zealand would know what's going on um, at South Pole Station, for example. Yeah, it's a really good question. The, one of the key principles of the Antarctic Treaty itself is, um, is transparency of operation. So an example of that is that the treaty, a treaty party has the right to go and inspect the facilities of any other party at any time. And once you have, once a country has nominated its inspectors, then those inspectors can go to the Antarctic, um, turn up at the uh, facilities of another national program or another Antarctic Treaty Party, and undertake an inspection. Right. So it, it, it's quite a transparent and open system. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the environment, just turning to your environmental impact assessment question, a lot of the environmental impact assessments that are undertaken are made freely available right. and, and shared internationally. And in fact, the very highest level of environmental impact assessment that Natasha talked about, the CEE, the Comprehensive Environmental Evaluation, if you're doing one of those, you have to share it internationally. Right. It's like an international peer review process that it has to go through um, in order to um, account for the feedback of, um, of all the other Antarctic Treaty parties. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite open. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. It's a very interesting system and it's um, one of a kind. Definitely. What are some examples of policies that are in place in Antarctica um, in particular? Does New Zealand have any, you know, examples of Antarctic policy that is quite strict when we go down each summer or each winter uh, to visit Scott Base and do science? Code of conduct that Antarctica New Zealand has got in place. I mean, we all have to abide by the rules that the environmental mm. protocol sets out. But then through the, the National Antarctic Program, Antarctica New Zealand has its own controls in place as, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's sort of just like a, um, essentially like a list, the code of conduct of guidelines of how we must behave in Antarctica. Um, it includes various things such as um, the distance you must stay away from animals um right. you have to yeah so we do have our own guidelines that's not to say that those guidelines are legally binding as such it is part of our policy framework at antarctica new zealand um right. yeah so and how did that how did that come into force like was that just 
established within Antarctica New Zealand as its own separate entity and then it was kind of agreed upon by the staff the operations team there or is that because you know the American base is so close is it kind of in conjunction with their rules that they have going on in McMurdo? I think it was more an initiative uh, of Antarctica New Zealand's to enforce a code of conduct like that. Neil would probably know better than me because he was actually the general manager of environmental management back probably when they even developed the code of conduct. So yes yeah. it was seen as a way of um, taking the internationals and putting them into practice so that we had a, an opportunity to communicate to staff, set standards and expectations that, that, um, that we wanted to operate through the national program. And um, some of those align nicely with the way that other national programs operate in, in the Antarctic, uh, but mm -hmm. we have slightly different rules in, in some cases. Um, so, for example, the, the, the rule that Natasha referred to about the distance that we like to keep New Zealand staff away from wildlife may not be the same distance that other national programs operate to. Right. Um, but, but nonetheless, you know, those are the expectations and the standards that, that we expect in New Zealand. And having that code of conduct in place is really important because it provides a sort of a consistency of approach. It's a, a teaching aid, uh, an awareness raising aid. Um, to make sure that New Zealand is doing its bit um, uh, that's consistent with the international rules. Very interesting. So now to, I guess, change up the conversation a little bit, what does your role as an environmental and health and safety consultant entail, Neil? Yes, thank you. Yes, I'm, I feel like a very lucky guy. Um, I've, I've worked on Antarctic issues all my life and now I get to do it through my own business. So um, as a consultant, um, I get to work with a range of um, uh, stakeholders involved in Antarctic work, including uh, governments who might be interested in policy development and uh, input to the Antarctic Treaty Meeting, which we've spoken about. I get to work with uh, national Antarctic programs, including Antarctica New Zealand, on sort of the implementation of these environmental rules that we've been talking about. Um, things like environmental impact assessments, conducting those, uh, developing monitoring programs, uh, looking at biosecurity arrangements. Um, so a suite of um, support, I suppose, that I provide to, um, uh, to governments and to national programs around the world. That is really cool. So how I'm did you get <laughs> yeah. how did you get to where you are today and what interested you the most about environmental policy and consulting? So I went along when I was at uh, university in, in Leeds um, in the UK, I saw a talk that was being given by the British Antarctic Survey. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I went along to that and I was absolutely gripped throughout the whole of the talk about this possibility of going down to Antarctica. Up to that point, I'd never given the idea any thought whatsoever. And uh, fortunately, they were looking for uh, some research to be undertaken, which aligned really nicely with my final year project at university. Um, so I applied and was very lucky to be given the job with British Antarctic Survey. And from that point forward, I was just hooked uh, on this wonderful otherworldly environment of Antarctica. Um, and I went and lived in Antarctica uh, for two and a half years with British Antarctic Survey to, to conduct my research. 
Wow. And then after that, just wanted to do anything that would keep me involved in the Antarctic game. So um, I've had a variety of roles to do with Antarctica over the years. I've, I've run an Antarctic station for British Antarctic Survey. I worked in the Foreign Office in London on polar policy matters, both Arctic and Antarctic, and uh, was then um, uh, even more fortunate to be offered the opportunity to work with Antarctic in New Zealand uh, and come and live in Christchurch um, in the, uh, the early 2000s. So variety of roles, but all focused on um, Antarctica, which is a place that I just have a, a deeply, uh, deep found fondness for. Incredible. When you spent two and a half years leading the base down for the British Antarctic Survey, where was, where was that? Because I know um, the UK, they have multiple bases down in Antarctica, don't they? Mm, that's right. Yes, they did. They had five Antarctic stations at the time. Um, and this was a, a, a station called Signy Island Station. Signy Island is one of the islands in the South Orkney group of islands, just off the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula and just south of 60 degrees south. So a very maritime climate. We did have sea ice that formed in the winter around the station. Um, but we also had an enormous amount of wildlife on the island during the summer as well. Uh, fur seals, um, three different species of penguins, seabirds. So it's a, a really wonderful place to stay, but a very small island, just three miles by five miles, and a very aging station as well. Some bits of the station would, were established in the 1940s. Wow. So there was many times waking up in the morning with snow on my sleeping bag in the, uh, in the bunk rooms. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> <Did gosh>. leak. <laughs> That's so this is, is this why your dog's called Signy Neil? That's right. So the dog's all coming uh, together. It's now called Signy after the, uh, after the island that I lived on, yes. That is very special. <laughs> so how many seasons have you done down in Antarctica? Well, I did the, the two winters and, uh, and multiple summers with British Antarctic Survey. And gosh, um, I, I forget now, um, probably about sort of 10 seasons of trips with, uh, with Antarctica New Zealand down to Scott Base. How amazing. So um, you two actually have a, a very special relationship as well. Neil, you are Natasha's PhD supervisor. Natasha, could you just explain what your PhD is about and how you, I guess, caught the Antarctic bug as well? Yeah, sure thing. So I also feel very lucky after hearing all of Neil's lifelong escapades with the Antarctic that I can have such an incredible person to supervise me in my PhD. I also have another incredible supervisor as well, Dr. Daniela Liggett. She's based at Gateway Antarctica at University of Canterbury, which is where I'm also based for my PhD. Um, and she has a very long term experience as well in Antarctic governance and Antarctic tourism actually and um, policy. So yeah, incredible supervisory team on my side. Um, but yeah, so I suppose my journey began, I mean, it's, we live in this crazy time where we were constantly bombarded by sort of negative news about the impacts that we're having on the environment as humans and with climate change and the ocean acidifying and ice sheets and shelves melting all over the place and sea level rising um, and the loss of biodiversity. Um, so I suppose my anxieties around that have also inspired me into action. And um, I've always also had a deep fascination with Antarctica. It seems just like, uh, and it is the most spectacular, special place one of the most amazing places I've ever been in my life. Um, 
So I first, I applied for postgraduate certificate in Antarctic studies at the University of Canterbury. And that was a very short course uh, here in Christchurch. And it actually had an Antarctic field component. So we went down there and did some field work. Um, and that really inspired my passion to start thinking about, well, we have all the science telling us all of these things and what what's happening? Why is there no policy action? And there must be something occurring at that divide between science and policy that's not um, totally working. And so that's kind of where my journey with this PhD began. Just to kind of recap on what we've already chatted about, we've covered the Antarctic Treaty System as the sort of governance framework that manages human activity in the Antarctic. And those instruments that we've spoken about so far, so the um, the Protocol on Environmental Protection and CAMLA, um, decisions are supposed to be made on the best available scientific advice. And so I don't think we've already mentioned that so for the, um, when they agreed the Antarctic Treaty, the Antarctic Treaty parties decided that they'd meet um, on a regular basis. And so annually now they have these Antarctic Treaty consultative meetings, which is also known as the ATCM. And they have a committee called their Committee for Environmental Protection, which actually provides um, technical advice to the ATCM. So the policymakers at the ATCM can make informed decisions on the best available scientific advice. And CAMLA has the same thing. So they have a scientific committee, which also provides scientific advice to the people who are making the decisions um, at those commission meetings, which also occur um, annually. And um, from the early beginnings, there was also the formation of what is now called SCAR, which is the Scientific Committee for Antarctic Research. And SCAR is um, another body that compiles Antarctic science from all over the globe and basically provides independent science advice as well to the treaty system, so to those policymakers. And every year at the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, they have um, somebody from SCAR does a lecture to the entire floor so that the policymakers can learn about the latest Antarctic science issues. So you kind of have this huge big framework that's based upon, it's founded upon this um, science as kind of like the mantra of the Antarctic treaty system. And my question, I suppose, comes in and asks, okay, so we had these systems in place, but how well are they actually working in reality um, and so that's kind of the question of my PhD how effective is the um, science policy interface within an Antarctic uh, context and for me I have a background in psychology and sociology so I think in order for me to understand how effective this is um, it's really important to look at the perspectives of all of those actors who are involved in that process um, because there's a lot of people as Neil's mentioned already involved in this consensus decision making which means that everybody has to agree which is a double-edged sword because you have everybody agreeing on the one hand but on the other hand um, you end up with these kind of diluted products because the negotiations often end up trying to please everybody um, so you might end up with a decision that's not what necessarily everybody wanted in the start my PhD is going to be sort of looking at what's happening at that interface because, yeah, as I said at the beginning, you don't really have to delve too far in the literature to see that there is a lot of 
dissatisfaction from the scientific community around how we are managing the Antarctic. And it seems kind of a shame when we have this beautiful system in place, which is so unique in comparison to systems elsewhere around the world. Um, What is missing and yeah, what's missing, especially in those interactions between policymakers and scientists. And that's what I'll be exploring. I'm at the very beginning. So it's an exciting journey ahead. It is an exciting <laughs> journey. You're right. What do you have to do? Uh, you mentioned to me um, before that you conduct interviews. Yeah, so looking at doing a number of things. So, yeah, interviews will be a large component. So to kind of understand, uh, yeah, the different perspectives, the values, the needs, interests of the various actors involved, I'll probably be interview or hope, hoping to interview uh, some of the national delegates. So some of those people who do go to the uh, international meetings and are the decision-making um people at those meetings as well as the science community. I'm also interested in looking at the influence of uh, NGOs, so uh, non-governmental organisations and um, another sort of aspect as well, so just to give a little bit of context of where the research came out of, um, New Zealand has this new funding for Antarctic science. So I think it was about two years ago, Neil, if I am correct. That's right. That um yeah, the New Zealand government decided to designate a pot of cash to Antarctic research, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um and so Neil, Daniela, myself and also Keisha Poirot, who's from um, Antarctica, New Zealand, sit on the science policy expert group for this um, sort of funding body to uh, facilitate the interactions between the science that's done underneath this funding um, and the people who actually need that scientific information to inform decision making in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of that's what's funding my research. I don't know if you want to add to that. Neil probably can speak slightly more eloquently on the topic than I can. <laughs> no, not at all. That's a great uh, summary. And I think uh, that the, the point of the expert group is to, to look at the opportunities that this long-term mm. funding provides mm-hmm. to do something a bit different and better connect the, the Antarctic researchers and all of their wealth of knowledge with the, the policy folk and the managers who can maximize the utilization of that knowledge uh, for good effect to continue with these high standards of environmental protection in the region. Mm. Yeah, so as a part of this sort of expert group that we have formed, we, we're going to be running hopefully a series of workshops that um, we're looking to sort of bring both the science community and the policy community together um, so that we can potentially foster uh, more collaboration and also um, develop more of an understanding of yeah what the needs are for everybody all the stakeholders involved um, and understand how the research that's being done can actually have an impact because research impact is such a buzzword these days everybody kind of chucks into their proposal and says that you know my research is going to have impact but what that actually means um, to everybody involved might be different so we're kind of aiming at understanding what impact means for those people in decision making roles what impact means according to the scientists and if we can develop more of a shared understanding what impact is so that we can actually ensure that the research is truly having an impact and also looking at how we can measure the impact because that Mm -hmm. hasn't really been done in an Antarctic context so 
um, yeah, exciting times ahead. That is very exciting. And mm. a question in terms of, you know, as a scientist, once you've, well, as a, a budding scientist, you've done your research, you've written your papers, they might get peer reviewed and published. How then can you help policymakers? So rather than just moving on to the next thing or moving on to the next paper, how, how do you guys feel that a scientist can make real impact with their work? Yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> it's very much the question of my entire PhD project. Well, no, for, um, <laughs> um, I think and a really important thing for young researchers is instead of you've just outlined the process of kind of doing an entire PhD project, getting to the end and thinking, oh my gosh, did I make an impact? I think if you, it's really important to be asking that question at the start and exactly like you said, who is it that you actually want to benefit from your research? Um, and in the beginning, engage those people and understand their needs and interests so that potentially your research can then align with those um, throughout the process instead of just at the end, um, you know, delivering some published paper to a policymaker who's incredibly busy and has a million other things to focus on. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's very important to be engaging the people that you want to influence from the very beginning. Right. And who, who are these people? Like who, who could I call up tomorrow and say that this is what my PhD is on um, in three years time, this might be of interest to you. Yeah, I think the, um, the movers and the shakers in the Antarctic world are really government officials. Mm. So these are the people that go along to the international meetings and negotiate on, the, on behalf of New Zealand and need to be as informed as they can be and as up to date with the current state of knowledge on the key issues that, that they're, they're looking at. And um, so I think that that's, they're probably the primary audience. They're, they're what we're referring to um, in this work that we're doing as the, uh, the key stakeholders that have a, a direct need um, for, uh, for Antarctic research knowledge. But then there's a broader group um, of uh, industry, um, local governments within New Zealand who are also stakeholders in that they need to understand the longer term effects of uh, climate change and the way that a changing Antarctic climate will have influence back here in New Zealand as well. So there's a lot of research that's being done in Antarctica, seemingly a long way away from New Zealand, but has direct effect in terms of understanding the future change that we're likely to experience back here in New Zealand, sea level rise is the very obvious thing. As Antarctic ice melts, sea levels are going to change all around the world. What's, what does that mean for New Zealand's coasts? So those stakeholders need to be engaged in the science. They need to be under, uh, to communicated to in terms of the latest understanding. So there's a, there's a range of stakeholders that have a direct interest in Antarctic research. Mm. And I think we're really lucky in New Zealand as well, because obviously we're a very small country and um, it's quite, you know, it's quite easy to actually access these people. Um, you could just rock up to Antarctica, New Zealand and ask for a meeting with Keisha, who's our um, representative for the Committee for Environmental Protection. Um, it's probably not so easy in other countries. So I think we're incredibly privileged in that sense. So I would encourage any young New Zealand researchers to engage with those people if they can. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think there's also a lot, 
you know, we, when we think about the Antarctic, you tend to think about it in terms of how it's defined, like south of 60 degrees south or south of this um, polar front. And actually the ecosystem of the Antarctic is so interlinked with the ecosystem here in New Zealand and everywhere around the globe. And so if you're a young researcher in New Zealand, say you're looking at, you know, marine research or something like that, and you've got these migratory species, for example, that are traveling down to Antarctica and back to New Zealand. So if you're feeling like perhaps the management of those uh, species or the protection of those species isn't sufficient down in what it, the area that's managed under the Antarctic Treaty System, well, how could we support as a nation, you know, the, the parts of that animal's life cycle here so that, say, if it's foraging off the west coast of the South Island, we could build protected areas here. The You know, the whole system's interlinked, so we shouldn't we shouldn't be thinking about it so much in isolation. And I think that is a little bit of an issue as well that, yeah, people yeah. can't see how it relates to their work as easily. So it'd be nice to be able to communicate a more integrated picture of how Antarctica fits into daily life all around the globe. Yeah, no, that's a really, really interesting point. And I think, like you say, we are so lucky here in New Zealand that this, you know, the size of the country and how accessible the likes of Antarctica New Zealand and other government officials are, um, we can have these really important conversations and collaborate as much as possible to actually make proper change, which is really, really special. Well, on that note, I think... um, we can wrap up the conversation, but thank you so much for your time. We definitely got through all my list of questions. and Yeah, thanks for having us. That's Indeed. not a problem. Thank you very much, Sinead. Sun will come up anyway. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to learn and listen. More information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Sinead Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next, next time, time, stay cool. Stay cool.